0: I do think the time we spend is visiting with each other, talking together, encouraging each other is a very valuable part of this. Certainly, I don't want to take away from the importance of the word. Obviously, there's no substitute for that, but the opportunity we have to strengthen and encourage each other is also a wonderful blessing to us. We're so, uh, so blessed by being able to share this together. Um, so, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Challenging chapter to say the least. I think almost anyone would agree with that. And we'll try to work our way through this. So, would somebody read Romans 8, verses 1 through 11?
1: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it is through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit." and the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please God however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, that the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you.
0: Kind of have to clean the cobwebs out of our mind when we'll we read Paul we'll in Romans, do we? A lot in the... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in the era of Christ, for those who are in Christ, because he's already received our condemnation. So if we're in him, we're protected. We receive the benefits of his death. It says, for the law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and of death this is law a lot here, for like the principle or something. Uh, But he talks about how how the law of the Spirit has freed us from the law of sin and death. Now, we're going to look a lot at the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. The word Spirit is used five times, from chapters 1 to 7, 21 times in chapter 8, and 8 times in 9 to 16. So you've got a big concentration of focus on the Spirit in chapter 8. More than any New Testament chapter. At least in terms of the number of times the term Spirit is used. I have come to the conviction that it is better for us to see Spirit as the Holy Spirit whenever possible. I didn't used to think that way. But I've come to believe that most of the time it is talking about the Holy Spirit. Not every time, not every time in this chapter. But typically I think it is. And so I believe that we need to give full attention to the Holy Spirit, and this is a good chapter to help us do that. I know that in my life, as I said earlier, I have spoken about the Holy Spirit less than I should have, less than the Bible does. And I'll tell you one reason I've done that in recent years. I just felt like I didn't understand what I was talking about very well. But I've come to decide I'm not going to. I'm 62. And I need to talk about what the Bible says even if I don't understand it very well. The truth is, there are a lot of things I believe that I don't understand very well. I don't understand how God answers prayers, do you? I believe He does, I teach He does, but you don't have to start asking me very many questions about how that all works. I don't really understand. I believe Jesus lives in me, but I don't understand that. I don't understand how, I don't understand all that that means. What?
2: I comment to that, best I that, is not on your
0: understanding addressing the Lord. Yeah. So we don't have to understand things that we believe and that we have conviction about. And uh, you know, I, I believe we need to, to to give full weight to everything the Bible says. And if we don't understand it very well, okay, we may not be able to answer a lot of questions. But we still need to believe it. And then we need to seek to understand things more deeply as we go. So he's saying there's no condemnation because we are free from this law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit in this new era has freed us from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is what we saw in the last part of chapter 7 where he's fighting this losing battle and giving it to sin and dying. We're free from that law through the Spirit, through Jesus. In Christ Jesus, the spirit of life is freed us from violence. Now he says in verse 3, what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh. The law could liberate us from sin and death. That makes you see what a great thing it was that the gospel was able to do this. Because it just shows you, if you take something as powerful as the law, and the law and The fact that Jesus can is amazing. It really shows you that, that this, is a, this is a remarkable thing. Now, why couldn't the law liberate us? Well, it was weak through the flesh. That is, the law's problem wasn't it was a bad law, it was that we were bad. The, the, our, our sins, our failures, the conditions the law had to operate under were unfavorable conditions. The law was a fine law. But it can't liberate us because of our fleshly weakness. But what the law could not do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, so he's saying that God freed us by sending his son. The law couldn't free us from sin and death. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why did he say in the likeness of sinful flesh? I believe that the likeness is related to the sinful part. He sinned him in the flesh, like our flesh, except, his one sin. he didn't do any sin. When our life is tainted by sin, his was not. So he was just like us, except with no sin. So he's in the likeness of sinful flesh, except for the sinful part, that he's not like. Um, but Jesus came as a man. That's a remarkable thing in and of itself. You can talk a long time about the whole idea of God deciding to humble himself and lower himself to become a good being. Wow. That, that's just amazing that God would do that to liberate. Uh, but he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and was an offering for sin and condemned sin in the flesh. So, if, if God condemned sin in the flesh, By the sacrifice of Jesus. I believe that judgment against sin was executed in Jesus. Sin exerts its power in the flesh. We've seen that. And so it was in the flesh that sin was condemned. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins on the cross. He conquered sin in his own wealth. He didn't conquer sin. As a powerful God up in heaven, somehow issuing a decree to defeat it, he became flesh. He conquered sin in the very area of sin's own realm and dominion. So I think he's saying, as a man, through his own body, through his own life, he condemned sin. So that's saying, I believe, that God executed his judgment on sin in Jesus' death. Let me show you a couple passages. Look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the truth. So Jesus was made a curse for us. God executed judgment on sin as Jesus took that punishment upon himself. Or look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was made sin for us. Now, notice carefully, Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus never sinned. If Jesus had sinned, he couldn't have borne our sins. He would have had to be punished for his own. So Jesus was not a sinner, but he became sin for us. He bore our sins. Uh, he suffered God's wrath, God's judgment on sin, in himself. So, so Jesus absorbs the punishment. He took our place in judgment, so that we can be saved. But He did it as a man. He conquered sin in His own realm of dominion superiority. As a man, He. Confronted sin and overcame sin in the flesh. Really remarkable passage, remarkable thought. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I'm not sure if the requirement of the law here means the death of the sinner. Or maybe refers somehow to he his righteous behavior. He actually did what God wanted. But at any rate, it might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Here's another way of describing the people who receive the benefits of Christ's death. They walk in the Spirit. They walk, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And not in the flesh that is on their own doing their own thing. They submit to the Holy Spirit. And he explains, those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There's two different kinds of people, two different kinds of mindsets. Some people are fleshly focused. They think about themselves and this life and their own desires. Some people are spirit focused. They think about the Lord. They think about the Spirit. They think about the Gospel. That's their outlook. That's their value system. And as a result of that, the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. There's two different states, two different destinies. Life and death. Whether you mind the things of the Spirit or of the flesh is a life and death matter. He says, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, it's not even able to do it. You cannot be fleshly minded and submit to God. That's a logical contradiction. You have to, if you're, if you're fleshly minded, you won't submit to the Lord. <clears throat> so you can't set your mind on the flesh and serve God at the same time. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the blessing of Jesus liberating us from sin and death, the blessing of Jesus uh, condemning sin in the flesh, the blessing of Jesus taking our punishment is for those who think spiritually and who, who walk by the Spirit, who let the Spirit guide them and direct them, and not those who act on their own, follow their own thinking, use their own willpower or whatever just try to uh to be what what they think they ought to be now he says in verse 9 however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of god lives in you so he thinks the best of them they are he believes they're not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in them but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he's not belonging i mean you know, if, if you're an unbeliever, you have indwelling sin. If you're a faithful child of God, you have the indwelling Spirit. You know, it was one or the other. And so he says, uh, you know, if you're if you're if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're in you're in the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong him. You have the Spirit, or you're out of Christ. One or the other. But if Christ is in you, this is a very important thought and challenging. If Christ is in you, verse ten. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Why? Right. Even if the spirit is in you, there is one part of you that sin still has a, is a factor in and that's your body. Because you know what's going to happen to your body, and Jesus doesn't have that for it, it's going to die. Now, why will our body die? It's because of the consequence of sin, it's because of being expelled from the tree of life. God did not originally design us to die. Death is unnatural. Death is against God's original purpose for us. So the body is doomed to die because of sin. There will be a full redemption. The ultimate redemption of our body occurs on the day of judgment when Jesus comes back and raises our body. So we, we sin still has partial dominion over us. It will eventually take our body. But the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So, our spirit is alive. Our spirit is not dead. Our spirit continues to to thrive and to do well, but our body will ultimately be conquered by sin in the sense that it will die. But, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so what he's saying is, so right now, Sin still will have an effect on your body. It will cause you to die. Not your own sin, but sin in the world. Sin still has that degree of dominance. But one day, your body, the only property still sin still has any power over, will be raised. The deliverance Jesus accomplishes, which is already complete in our spirit, will ultimately prevail over all things in the resurrection. The rule of death, is not finally ended until our body is raised. Now, let me just stop here and say, we have a terrible time understanding the resurrection. I don't know how many times I've asked groups of people, what part of us is raised, the body or the soul? And two-thirds say the soul, and one-third say the body. The one-third are right. Your soul's never buried yet. Your soul's not going to be raised. It's your body that's raised. We believe in a bodily resurrection. Now, I understand that the body that's raised is going to be different. It's going to be adapted to our heavenly home. I don't even know what all that difference must mean. We don't really understand what the body will be like. But it will be our body that's raised up one day. And uh, so, he that's what he's saying here. Is that, right now, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body is doomed to die because of sin, but if, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will cause you to be raised from the dead. Your mortal bodies will, will be given life through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit will raise your body up one day when Jesus returns, and your body will be restored to you. Glorified, changed, transformed, all that, and more. But it'll be your body that you receive. I remember when my mother was buried, that the man who preached at her graveside said something I thought was really cool. I don't know that I heard it said before. I don't know why. But he said to the family, don't think of this as the spot where your mother is buried. Think of this as the place from where she will be raised. That's exactly right. She'll be raised. Now, I understand bodies decompose. But God made our bodies out of the dust of the earth to begin with. I assume God had no problem with taking our bodies from its decomposed state and, and making it uh, alive again. God will take care of all that. I don't have to worry about that. The Bible teaches clearly that we'll be raised. So really, there will be a complete triumph over sin. We are redeemed now. We will be ultimately redeemed on the last day. You know, we have life now, we'll have ultimate life on the last day. The only thing sin that has any part of, of control of over right now is our body, because it'll kill it, but that will be reversed by the resurrection of the body through the Holy Spirit when Jesus returns. I think these are just triumphant When If you could feel this, you could see this, you could understand this, we have every reason to have a victorious triumphant Um, you know, confident walk with the Lord. Because sin is the conflict. Death is in the process of being destroyed. We are victorious. We are in Christ. The Spirit dwells in us. There is no condemnation. Jesus has taken the penalty on himself. If we are in the Spirit, then Christ will raise up our bodies in the last day. And we will be fully given to God in eternal bliss. What a wonderful blessing, what a wonderful prospect. If, if, if we don't study passages like this, we miss out on such glorious teaching. It takes a lot of work to get there, but it's worth it once you get there. So I realize this is challenging stuff, and maybe controversial in some points. Comments, questions, disagreements. Carl. like the
3: language connection in verse... Uh Verse 3 you We've been dealing with Adam up in verse five, some, and this is kind of an aside with that. You know, Adam was made in God's likeness. we now got Christ coming in the likeness as well, the the same taking on the same nature, if you will, as Adam. Hebrews two deals you with know, that. But Hebrews one also deals with the fact that He came completely in the likeness of God. He's the image of God as He came. As well, so He He's the perfect combination of that, and it was necessary that He take
2: on the flesh to be able to meet the suffering. Amen. Good point. Matt? Uh, I was thinking of the connection between this and Ezekiel 37 uh, with the Valley of Dry Bones. God raised them up as well. Yes. I think the
0: Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37 is more of a conceptual resurrection of of Israel, the cause of their (laughs) prospects as a nation. Not so much a physical resurrection. It uses the physical resurrection as the illustration. But yes.
4: Jason. The same spirit that <clears throat> raised Jesus from the dead will ultimately raise us from the dead. Amen. Just and if we don't have that spirit, that dooms us. Exactly. Yes.
0: I think that's exactly right. It's amazing. <coughs> I'll tell you, it, it's interesting. and we'll, we'll look at this eventually uh, after this segment. All the things that we're told the spirit does in this passage. The spirit is such so involved in
5: every aspect of our salvation. Jay. I was studying with an older brother. and he was, I think he was in the 60s or late 50s, maybe. And he was a Christian for a long time, most of his life. And somehow we got on the topic of the Holy Spirit. And I just read, I i, you know, I explained some of my thoughts on the Holy Spirit. And then I just read. I didn't commentate. I didn't do anything. I just read Romans 8, the whole thing. And he's like, I, you know, I don't think I've ever heard that. Ever. And that just is a demonstration of... Sometimes what we can do and neglect Well,
0: definitely. We need to be studying harder passages, too. Well, it isn't the only thing in the Bible, but it's in the Bible, and we need it. Yes? So, I, this
6: might be a stupid question, but I'm thinking we're, if the Spirit, if having the Spirit is what raises, the Spirit raises us from the dead, and it's the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, but we know that all will be raised physically on the last day, but not all of those people have the Spirit. Correct. I mind to understand.
0: So I assume that when the Spirit raises us, it's a whole different nature thing. Because we'll be raised up with Jesus, we'll be given a glorified, honorable body like Jesus has. I have no idea what kind of bodies the wicked will receive. But I don't think it's going to be anything like ours. So they'll be raised up too. But it's not going to be such a pleasant thing for them. So uh, beyond that, we are told so little about the resurrection of the wicked. We know they will be raised, but I don't have any idea what their bodies are going to be like. But I suspect it will be adapted
7: to their spiritual destiny as well. Yes, John. With fear and trepidation, I've got a little bit different take on what this may be talking about from the standpoint of it seems like he's talking about we need to be living in the Spirit, We need to, not, it, even in our mortal bodies right now. So if we go back to Romans 6, and he talks about we write us to walk in newness of life. And then he's talking here about, you know what, even in your mortal bodies, what if that's saying in your mortal bodies right now, because of the Spirit, you can live a life that is not according to the flesh anymore. And and so there's this dichotomy of even when you're in your mortal body, you don't have to be focused on the flesh. You can have this life in the spirit, and then it keeps going with this idea of living according to the flesh, you'll die, but if you're living according to the spirit, that kind of thing. And so I almost wonder if he's trying to separate... Even within your mortal body, that is going to decay and is going to decline, that you don't have to be dominated by the flesh. There is this light in the spirit, which is the newness of life you've been raised to. At least those
0: are all true principles. There's no, there's no problem with that. I'm, I'm not sure we would diverge somewhere along the lines we care for the passage, but I think those are all true. Okay. Other thoughts? Ben.
1: Can you summarize once, uh, once
8: more the, the flow of thought from uh, 6,
0: 7, 8? All right, so I think the question is, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. We died. We should not live in sin any longer. We're under grace, not under law. Therefore, we're free to live for the Lord. And that's what we ought to do. But it's when we're living under the law that we're bound in sin, that sin uses the law to slay us, and we become a slave to sin. But in Jesus, and through the Spirit, we're released from the law of sin and death, and we have life and ultimate triumph and victory over sin and death. I, I, I.
9: We've talked about how Adam's sin brought death on us, Unconditionally, that we have to suffer because of that, and with all this talk about the Spirit, it reminds me of how uh, the Holy Spirit is described as being a comforter, and I get this real idea of comfort in this passage. That this death that was brought on us unconditionally, that wasn't because of our sin, because of Adam's sin, that now we all have to die. Now we can be raised. We have comfort and find comfort in the fact that we will be
0: raised. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good point. Certainly. Yeah, that is very comforting to us, and this is a very hopeful, positive chapter. Other thoughts?
8: All right, 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the Spirit of adoption as sons, to whom we cry and have a father. The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So,
0: we are under obligation, verse 12, not to the flesh. We really don't owe anything to the flesh. What has the flesh ever done for us? We've been freed. Don't go back to your old master. Now, the truth is, grace does not make us robots. And so we must seize the opportunity grace provides. You know, this is not like grace just automatically makes it impossible for us to sin. So we are not under obligation to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, or if you're living according to the flesh, you must die, flesh leads to death. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, if you continue to follow the dictates of the flesh, you're, you're dead. But the flesh-dominated body must be killed by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the strength, enables us to put to death the deeds of the body. Not by our own willpower. We trust the Spirit to provide the strength to resist the passions that wage war on us. And so we're not trying to fight off the flesh by our own unaided effort. And, and, but we're also not trying to bind it off by the Spirit without our participation. we working together with the Spirit, but to death, the deeds of the body. Uh, and so, so sometimes, do you ever find yourself, I tried and tried and tried, and I just couldn't kill the deeds of the flesh. Were you doing by the Spirit? Were you relying on the source of strength that God provides? Were you trusting the Lord? Were you turning to the Lord? Were are praying to the Lord? Were you relying on Him, or you're just trying to be strong enough in yourself to do that? I think that's a good question. Forgiveness, grace, the Spirit gives us strength and and make it possible. There is so much in the Bible to suggest that we need the Spirit for our spiritual growth and development. Galatians 5 is a good passage. Walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And, And we need that spiritual fruit, the fruit born by the Spirit in our lives. And, uh, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We need the Spirit in us, producing fruit, killing the flesh, and giving us the strength to overcome and live for the Lord. I think that's the, the picture we see. So he says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We're gonna live if we put to death the deeds of the body through the Spirit, because if we're led by the Spirit, we're sons of God. Sons of God can't die. Now, how do we know we're sons of God? You have received, you have not received the spirit of slavery. There's a good passage where I think spirit does not mean Holy Spirit. Spirit of slavery means like the mindset, the attitude of slavery. You've not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So, the spirit is a spirit that, that gives us this sense of being adopted of being God's children, of serving God from this close relationship, not out of a sense of dread, but out of love. And he says, we cry out, Abba, Father. It is so amazing to really see God as your Father. That's an amazing thing. You know, I mean... There are some rich people, it would be kind of nice if I could call them father, especially if they were pretty close to passing on,
7: you know, <laughs> they might be into their will,
0: that'd be kind of cool. Uh, there might be some virtuous people, that you'd like them to be your father, maybe they can be spiritually, um, but to be able to say to God, Abba, father, that's amazing. Now, why Abba, Father? I think he's bringing together the Jewish word for father and the Greek word for father. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can call God your father. I think that's the point. Certainly, I think it's the point of Galatians 4 where he uses that. I'm impressed by the idea of God adopting us to making us his children. One of the things that strikes me is that some natural children were not really wanted, not really planned for. They were kind of an accident. I understand there's some biology behind that, but not everybody was hoping for a child when they uh, were together. And, uh, but adopted children are never accidental. You know, just, oh, wow, I didn't know this was going to happen. I <laughs> didn't you know adopted a child. You know, it's not like that. So the fact that God adopts us makes me think about how purposeful How much he wanted me to be his child. He chose to adopt me. And he wanted that closeness with me. That's amazing. Um, You know, and and we cry out, not I'm God's son, but we cry out, He's my father. The focus is on him. And, And and the more you see God as your father, then the more you serve him out of love and not out of dread. And the more eager you are to be close to him, the more you want to be with him. Um, now, this adoption will be completed in verse twenty-three with the redemption of our body, with the resurrection ultimately. There's a lot of this. We are adopted, but we'll be more fully adopted. You know, we uh, we've been saved, but we'll be more saved. <laughs> you know, there's a, different, a greater level of that. We've got a lot of that in the Bible. But what we are adopted, and God is our Father now. And so he says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I think, I've gone back and forth on this one, but I think the idea is that the Holy Spirit testifies and our spirit also testifies that we are children of God, almost like being co-witnesses. I think there's there's a lot of debate about the meaning of the term, and I actually think the meaning of the term is this idea of the Spirit is witnessing the same thing that our spirit is witnessing. So the the Holy Spirit testifies we're children of God. Our spirit also testifies we're children of God. And uh, as children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Like I say, you know, there might be some advantages to being the child of certain rich people uh, because usually you get an inheritance. Well, we receive the inheritance of being glorified with him. And remember, we didn't glorify God we fall short of his glory, but in Jesus, we receive the glory of God again. That's amazing. People who refuse to glorify him are now being glorified with him by the work of the Son and the Spirit in redemption. Just wonderful blessings. So much to be thankful for, so much to be impressed by. There's just so much involved in what God did for us. I know this is challenging to think there's just a lot to absorb. So he's using terms we're not that familiar with. We know what they mean but we don't use them all the time. And just putting things together maybe in ways that we haven't thought about that much. But we need that. We need to challenge ourselves. So and the more we understand what God's done for us, I think the more it will change our lives. The more it will make us love God. It's just a whole different view. You're God's child. You don't worry about how people think about who cares about that? Amen. God views God you His child. He's your father. You know, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful blessing that God has given us in Jesus in the Spirit. So comments and thoughts through verse 17. How
9: does our spirit testify that we're children of God?
0: I think we are led to understand that we are children of God. We've done what God says to become His children. And we understand and believe, and we're convicted that we're children. So the Spirit says we're His children. We also are committed to the fact that we're His children. Yes. Does that be connected
6: to when it talks about in First John about God being greater than our heart and knowing all things? When it talks about how we know that we are walking in the light, even. You don't have, you don't I do
0: know what you're talking about. I have a different take on 1
6: John. Oh, no, I didn't mean to bring up Yeah, that. so I, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not passing the page. What does he mean in verse 7 when he like? says, we talked about being heirs, but he says, if we
2: suffer with it.
0: Yes. So, Jesus was glorified after his suffering we also will be glorified after our suffering. He's going to go into that then in these next sections. We'll suffer with him, but we'll also be glorified with him. It's kind of like we we follow the steps of Jesus in that. Suffering can ultimately be glorified. Joe?
9: I think we sort of see a snapshot of this uh, at the cross with Barabbas, the son of the father, being released because the son of the father took his place. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah,
9: good one. Yeah. Yes? So with um, the spirit of slavery, uh, back and fear, we, we, that's not what we're, we're called to. Uh, there is so much of that challenge today. Someone mentioned that the spirit is the comforter, uh, and that is such an encouraging thought, that contrast between the spirit of fear and the spirit of adoption, as you brought out, that uh, this should be one of the most encouraging and uplifting passages for us to courageously live in a way that, that shows that we're led by the Spirit, with our Spirit confirming and affirming that we're His children, and being encouraged and led by His Spirit uh, confirming that we're His children
0: as well. Sure, amen. Yeah, if we could we could feel this, if we could Develop this mentality, be much more victorious, hopeful, encouraged, and develop oh, more love for God.
2: Matt. So in chapter 6, he mentions that we are slaves of righteousness, but then kind of uh, states, like speaking in human terms, of our limitations. Is this kind of the clarification of what the scripture is actually supposed to be more like here in verse 15, where they' saying we're not? Uh, you can hear it, saying, to be afraid of God, but Yeah, good point.
0: Good thought. I think so. That chapter 6 talking about us being slaves to God is a little bit of a um, you know, it has some good concept because we really are serving God. He's our master. But it's such a much more glorious relationship. We serve him out of love. He's our father. We're close to him. We want to place him. I mean, it's like a small child may obey their parents because they're afraid they'll get whipped. But as you grow up, you obey your parents because you respect them, you respect God, and you love them. It's a different relationship. Um, and if you're just serving them because you're afraid you will get whipped, if you think they're not looking, you'll listen away. If you're serving them because of respect and love, you'll obey whether or not they're looking or do you think they'd ever find out. So it's a much better thing when we serve out of block Carl.
3: It's amazing the intimacy that you get to see even with this, this expression of have a father. And perhaps Paul did it with this question that the Holy Spirit is such <coughs> a thing we have a right to call him father. He's not just our slave master we voluntarily submit ourselves to. He is the, the sovereign of the universe and yet we don't have to call him Mr. President of the Universe. We can call him father. It's an intimate relationship.
0: Yes. Amen. The thought. Other thoughts, Jason. So we see the
4: Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God used interchangeably here, so. all referring to the Holy Spirit. So that speaks to me of the the closeness and relationship between Christ uh, and God, and you know, and then we're brought in to that relationship
0: as we submit our will uh, to the Father and to the Son. Yes, amen. Great, great thought, yes. They're very close, and we share in that in a blessed way.
10: Amen. I think it's cool, in um, chapter 5, it says that without Christ, we're enemies of God, and then the comparison to that with Christ, we are his children, that's just a huge difference.
0: Amen. Praise God. Mike. I wonder if there was...
4: Some of the groundwork for this was laid back in the Old Testament when God brought Israel out of Egypt. And it talks about him bringing them up by the Spirit, leading him through the wilderness. You kind of get that picture in Isaiah 63, I think, and then even bringing them into the land of rest. Now you have, you know, him working through Moses and the voice of the prophets and whatnot. But still, he uses the Spirit as the one who was credited, and you know, one who brings them out, and takes him through the wilderness, and then brings him into the land. it's mm-hmm. through that, lives. You kind of understand some of his phrases. Phrase
0: yeah, it would help us, I'm sure, if we would focus more on the role of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. We tended to neglect that, so we approach the New Testament, we're kind of shocked. What's the Holy Spirit all about?
10: Good
0: thought. Other company? <coughs> All right, we're going to sing a little bit, so let's do that. So we'll continue here in Romans 8, we're going to read 18 to 25. 18 to 25. I consider that the
10: sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was
6: subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the
10: creation itself also will be set free from its slavery, to corruption, and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? If we hope for sort of what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it.
0: So, as we've already been introducing, we've got a lot to hope for. We've got a lot to look forward to. We have great blessings in our future. And that is just a wonderful thing for us. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. It's amazing how much more glory we have than the suffering. And so, you know, whatever weight of suffering we endure, the weight of glory we have to look forward to is far greater, so much more. You know, the intensity of the suffering may almost be a sign of how much greater that glory must be, because we know the glory way outweighs the suffering, and transcends in every way that suffering. So, so, you know, yes, we live in a sin-cursed world, and yes, there are suffering, and there is anguish, and there is sadness, and grief, but, but we have such a great thing to look forward to, and we need to be focused on that. He says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. I believe he's talking here about all of like the creative elements, the subhuman creation. Uh, and that's often pictured poetically in the Bible. And uh, we know that when Adam sinned, the ground was cursed because of his sin. It wasn't the ground's fault. But the ground was cursed as a consequence to Adam and his sins, punishment. The world itself was cursed. And so the world looks forward to the the, the redemption. The, Lord, the world looks forward to the release from that curse. He says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him it was subjected. Um, you know, it wasn't by creation's choice that it got caught up in this whole... Uh, problem with sin and, and 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 uh the curse that was placed on the ground. They they were not there was not they were not in favor of that. Um and you think about creation being subjective to futility. Think about this. Um Ecclesiastes talks about how uh a life is I say vain vanity of vanity is always vanity you ever ask the question, why did God create the world to be so empty? My answer would be, he didn't. That's not how God created the world. That's the consequence of the fall. That's the curse God placed on the world. It wasn't originally empty. In the garden, it was perfect. It was a paradise. God dwelt with man. It's because of man's sin that creation has been cursed and subjected to futility. And so he's picturing the creation as groaning and longing for the redemption. He said, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, we're not the only ones groaning. We're not the only ones suffering. All creation is doing that too, and is longing for the glory. Is longing for the blessings that will come. Now, He says in verse uh, 23, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. (laughs) Now think about the idea that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The idea of the first fruits in the Bible is the idea of the first part of the crop. You know, when you, when you, we, we would plant corn. And we get the first years of corn. You know, that was always cool. You know, you waited all year for the corn. I like corn. When you sold it, we planted a lot. But we always enjoyed it. Dad always planted good sweet corn, good good uh, uh, you know varieties that were really sweet. And we pick it young, so it was really tender. And you, you really look forward to that. But the first fruits is kind of like the guarantee of the rest of the fruits. You know, you're anticipating there'll be a greater harvest than just those first few years. So what we've got now, what the Spirit gives us now, is just kind of a preliminary sample. We have a a good good sample. But what what we will receive will be way greater, way better, way more impressive. You know, we will receive our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. So we're looking forward to something much greater than we have now. We look forward to the redemption of our body the ultimate deliverance from sin. Now, he's focused a lot on the body as the instrument of sin. But when when we are finally redeemed in the resurrection of the body, it will be free from sin. It will be a glorified, wonderful body that God will be, God will raise up. And so He says, "We're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body." So, in all of these things, we, are we adopted? Yes. Are we totally adopted in every sense? No. The ultimate adoption is the redemption of the body. Are we redeemed? Yes. Are we fully redeemed? No. The ultimate redemption is in the resurrection of the body. You know, are we saved? Yes. But are we fully saved? No. The ultimate salvation is in heaven and so forth. So we have so much now. But what we have now is just the first fruits. We have so much more to look forward to. We have a great blessing coming in the future. What what a wonderful thing. In hope we've been saved. We're saved, but we're saved in hope with the best things yet to come. hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes what is already seen. Obviously, what we already see and have, that's not what we hope for. There's something better coming. That's what we're hoping for. If we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The idea is we're looking forward so much to the glories and blessings and ultimate things that God is going to provide for us in Christ. We have so much more that's awaiting us. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? Isn't that a wonderful picture? There's so much to be thankful for. There's so much to be excited about. Uh, so comments and questions from verse 25.
2: Matt. One of the things that's been helpful for you to think about with this is that um, our, our initial adoption we've already received. is like us being conceived as children. And then right now we're in the womb of the earth, uh, which is why it's uh, going through labor pains is why both it and we are suffering and then we'll receive the full blessing of being adopted as son once uh Jesus raises that us up and we are officially given birth to as adopted mm-hmm. Good 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 analogy. It's
0: lots of different Bible comparisons and analogies, but what we know is what we have received is less than what we will receive. But it's kind of like the promise, it's like the uh furnace money. We've got something to guarantee that guarantees that get the full dose. Yes, Jason.
6: So this is not a perfect analogy, um, and I, I didn't hear what was just said, so I might say the exact same thing. But um, depending on the type of physical, earthly adoption, this, this could be similar because sometimes you might have a kid that lives with you for a year or two or three or four, and then Finally, it starts moving towards okay. We, we can actually adopt now, and you start getting the paperwork ready, and it changes the whole spirit of, of the household and you know just the family dynamic. And it's just such a great feeling to know that that we we get to yeah you know, we're we're headed toward adoption, and that that's perfect. And so it just changes the mindset. But then finally, when you get to that adoption day and you go before the judge and they finalize it, and you have that. Uh, just the finality of you, know, you are a family now. It, it changes everything. It's so much better. Even though it was it great before, but now it's just like
0: that's that's the ultimate. Yeah, it's cool. It's hard telling how many people in here who have adopted children quite a few. and uh, so you see that you realize the joy of adopting, and certainly the joy of being adopted, and. Uh, we have the ultimate adoption. We are adopted and yet not as fully as we will be. So you know, we have another stage of that coming. What a blessing. Other thoughts? So, so. What is it that the Spirit is looking, or uh, what is it that the creation is looking forward to in this? Is looking forward to uh, being set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, what does that
10: mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. Christine.
6: Christine. I'm, I was just in a Roman class. I'm giving you all the questions I to answer in my last one. But, <laughs> so, so, if the concept of justification being what happens during or day, but sanctification being ongoing throughout, I had that brought up to me recently. Why? my same friend who was the and she was asking what
0: do you do with that concept the I agree with that and we're justified as we're saved by Christ but we, we continue the sanctification process in our life I think that's
5: Uh I just wanted to I, it's not much of an answer maybe but at least Paul talks about something like this again in Second Corinthians, <coughs> chapter, uh, or, yeah, Second Corinthians 4 um, verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have a lot to look forward to.
9: Andrew. So in verse 22, it says the whole creation is growing together in the pains of childbirth. So does that mean that it wasn't just a
0: punishment for humankind? I think that's correct. It was not just a punishment for humankind. I'm not sure I would say it was a punishment for creation, because I don't think it was destined to punish creation for something they did wrong, but the creation ended up being cursed because of the curse on mankind. Okay. Yes. Anything else? Yeah. The words that Paul uses
4: here to describe how the Christian ought to think about this future adoption is the word "groan" and "eagerly wait." And I just think about how many days go by where I'm not groaning, I'm not very eager uh, for that. Is that the excess of being Good
0: thought. Yeah, we need to groan and eagerly wait more. Maybe we need more suffering. Maybe we need more focus on the great blessings to come. Other thoughts? Yes?
10: Okay, about the whole like, uh, the, the creature growing and being decaying and then coming back to life, kind of, or going into the freedom of God. Could it be like how our bodies, when they're we raised, were raised from the earth but were changed? Mm-hmm. Is, is the creation, do you think it could be similar in that the creation is. Dead, it dies when Jesus comes back, but it's also raised and brought back to heaven in like a paradise, Eden, heaven, like mixer.
0: I would not argue that was impossible. Maybe it is something like that, but I'm not sure. That I, I, I there's it's an intriguing passage, but I'm not. I don't have a strong commitment as to what it's saying. But that's possible. Other thoughts,
4: Carl
3: dealing with the power of sin and the overwhelming power of salvation all through here. Jesus has way outdone what Adam created. So you see in the curse in Genesis 3 that the immediate consequence was birth pain. Well, for the woman, the phrase about her suffering was birth pain. For the man, it's the same phrase in Hebrew, the birth pain that really he brings forth fruit from the ground. So this whole creation is now pictured in that suffering together with man and woman, and that's going to be overdone. I think it's kind of fitting that as the gospel message is sent out in Mark 16, at least, it's preach the gospel to all creation, literally. Preach every creature, the idea, of preach this to creation, because this is what's going to undo the curse that was done. Okay, very good.
0: Good thoughts. It'd be helpful to have various uh, perspectives and thoughts to help us understand. Other comments or questions? <clears throat> All right. We're going to take a break for about fifteen minutes, and then we're going to come back into a rather challenging part of the Roman day. Today, you are taught about this passage.
2: Somebody read verses twenty-six to thirty. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our for we do not know what to pray for as we are, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too for words. And He who searches hearts knows what it is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those who, who He foreknew, He also presents to formed the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he rejected, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified.
0: All right, so we see how the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know that I understand exactly what that involves. Evidently, it's another role of the Spirit. In helping us. We often don't know how to pray, or maybe we don't know what to pray for, and we're not sure what God's will is in a matter. Um, in some sense, the Spirit intercedes for us with growing to me for words. Maybe he enables us to express our inexpressible feelings to God. Uh, maybe he prays in some way on our behalf. We do know that he who searches the, the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So it's encouraging to know that the Spirit has intimacy with God. He knows us, and he groans with us. And, uh, you know, so, so we have the Spirit's help in some way in our prayers. I'm just not positive exactly what sense he's saying that. But whatever it is, I'm sure it's a great blessing to us. There's a number of things that the passage talks about the Spirit doing that's helpful to us. And then he says, in a really challenging passage, we know that God causes all all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now that's an amazing thing, that God would cause all things to work together for good of those who love Him. Now this is not for everybody, clearly. This is for those who love Him. And uh, the things that happen, God's able to work together for the good of those who love Him. That's encouragement, that's comforting, because some things happen that really kind of throw us off and kind of shake us up and kind of worry us. And we know that the things that happen, you know, happen as a blessing to us, uh, that God will work them together for our good in some way. Now, we know that that's true because ultimately, of what God's purpose and plan for us is. We know that God, whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. Ultimately, God predetermined to glorify those who love Him. Now, if God determined to glorify, predetermined to glorify those who love Him, then the temporary trials of life will not be able to nullify what God predestined to occur. What God said would happen will happen. And we can count on that. Um, because God's going to cause all things to work together for our good. Uh, because God's determined to glorify us, then he's, he's going to make everything work together for the good so that he can accomplish that purpose of glorifying us. Um, so, he goes back and he really looks carefully. The whole process. There's just so much in these verses. Few words, but deep concepts. So, he says that to those who are called according to his purpose.
6: God has a purpose
0: to have a people. God has a going to have his own people. And these people, he foreknew. I believe that means that God knew ahead of time there would be people who would accept his call. People who would turn to him. People who would rely upon him and trust in him and all that. I think that's what he predetermined. Uh, he, he knew that ahead of time. And uh, they didn't arbitrarily predetermine who would be saved. He just knew that they would. And he predetermined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So he knows there's some people who are going to respond to his call. These are people he's purposed to be his people. And so he's determined ahead of time that they will be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he wants for his people. These that he knows will turn to him. He wants them to be like his son. Not to just be nice people or whatever. He wants them to be like Jesus. In their heart, in their character, in their behavior. So these people that are called according to his purpose, these people he knew ahead of time, these people who he predestined to be like his son, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brethren, these he called. I mean, why? Right, so he's got these people that he knows and that he's decided are going to be like his son, but he's got to in some way bring them to him. So he calls them. He wanted to gather these people by their response to the call of the gospel. Now, the gospel call doesn't appeal to everybody. Not everybody responds to the gospel, right? We've seen that. There are certain kinds of people that respond to the gospel. God designed a gospel that would appeal to a certain kind of people. God designed a gospel that would call the people who were humble, poor in spirit, hungry and thirsting after righteousness, meek, pure in heart, etc. The humble and submissive people, God's message will separate and call out <clears throat> now, we've all been tempted to modify the message, get more followers, because, you know, if we were just tweaking the gospel a little bit, it would appeal to more people. We'd get more 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 people in. And we have to resist that temptation because the gospel is the call to the people God wants. The people that are called according to His purpose. Now, you know, we could come up with a message that will call other people, but we perpetrated that some kind of a spiritual disaster. He doesn't want all the people He gets. He wants the people who have the qualities, the character, the humility and submissiveness that that He can work with, that He can make like His Son. So we've got to content ourselves. That the gospel is just not gonna be liked by everybody. It's not gonna it's not gonna speak to everybody. Um and, and that's the way it is. But now, when he calls these people by the gospel, they've got a problem, they've got a sin issue. They can't be God's people, because they're sinners. He justified them. Sin was the obstacle for God's purpose for these people. So before the world began, God planned to send his son to die and to justify them. So that was his solution to that issue. And uh, those he justified, then he also glorified. Because God had more than forgiveness in mind. God wasn't just trying to pick out these people so he could forgive them. He wanted to transform them. He wanted to glorify them. He wanted to make something out of them. So what we're seeing is that God has this purpose. He's called us by his purpose. He, these are people, he knew ahead of time that there'd be those people. He decided ahead of time he wants them to be like Jesus. He called them to the gospel. He justified them through the death of Christ and he predetermined he's going to glorify them and transform them and make them like him. Now, because of that, all things are going to work together for, for our good, to those who love God, those more known people. God's going to follow through on the process to make them glorified. And he's not going to let anything stop that. His purpose won't fail. Everything contributes to his plan. So you know that everything has to work together for good for those people because he's going to glorify them. Uh, It's unfortunate that a passage like this has been perverted to teach that God chose certain individuals for salvation irrespective of their lives. They irrevocably willed their salvation, and once they're saved, they could never be lost. This passage is talking about people who love God. This passage is talking about the kind of people God called and God wanted. These who walk by faith, these are in Christ, these who mind the things of the Spirit. It's these people that God has determined to glorify. He will get the job done because he'll cause all things to work together for their good. So if we're the kind of person that loves God, if we're the kind of humble, submissive person, that responds to the gospel, that he has sent Jesus to justify us, and he has determined he will glorify us. And he will make sure everything works together for that end. So that's a very encouraging passage. (coughs) Not in the sense that it gives encouragement to somebody who's not loving God, or who's not a humble, trusting person in the Lord. Those aren't the people he's talking about here. But if we're a person who loves God, then we know God has decided to glorify us and he will do that. And he'll make everything contribute to that purpose. So this is positive and, and encouraging. We see so many things about what God's doing for us that are just really encouraging in this
2: day. Comments and questions on all that? Matt? What be the difference where you things the same thing, in different ways in verse 29 he says, so those who he foreknew, he also predestined? Current foreknowledge and predestined? The same no, idea? I don't think they are.
0: I think foreknowledge is he knew there would be those people. He pre-knew that people would respond. Perhaps he pre-knew who they'd be. The predestined is determining what's going to happen with those people to determine that they're going to be like himself. So he knew them ahead of time and he decided what he was going to make out of them. He was going to make them like his son. Yeah, in Calvinism, foreknowledge and
8: predestination essentially are the same thing. But I think biblically they're not. Yes, biblical. Ephesians 1, verses 4
4: and 5 says Even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, having foregained up unto adoption as sons to Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good flavor of his will. be different
0: here. Absolutely. It's the same idea. He chose us to be something. He had a goal for us that we'd be holy and blameless before him. And he predestined us to be his sons. To be adopted, just the very same thing he's saying here, to be like his Son. And uh so, so God, God the, the thing that's wrong with Calvinism, is not the idea that God chose. God chose. The, idea, the thing that's wrong with Calvinism is the idea that God chose irrespective of our faith, our life, our love, our character, that the choice has to be arbitrary. But it wasn't at all. God chose the kind of people he wanted. Uh, so this arbitrary choice is, is totally wrong in Calvinism. And, and trying to make it something where man has no say in that. You know, God is not forcing salvation on people. He's choosing the kind of people who wants to be
2: saved. Man. In my uh, conversations with Calvinists, most of them uh, may not be totally extreme, but they would say that God is predestined, so The individuals that God is predestined are the ones who choose uh, to believe and follow uh, you know, the Bible. How is that different? Or is that different? They're not Calvinists. If they say they freely chose. Well, they don't say they freely chose, but they they say the ones that God predestined are the ones who we see obeying and living godly lives. Well, the consistent Calvinists
0: would say God chose them irrespective of their life, and then he essentially zapped them with the Holy Spirit to make them living their life. But that they wouldn't have done that on their own, they had to have God's special assistance to make them do that. And God couldn't have chosen them based on anything about them. God's choice had to be totally arbitrary, totally irrespective of anything about their lives, or, faith, or anything about them. That's really the Calvinist position. Now, there's lots of people who are kind of Calvinists. You know, and uh, I know we're talking a lot about that. Calvinism uses way so much, and it's reasonable we do. Most Protestant evangelical people have some kind of Calvinism. You know, but a lot of it's not consistent. Um so yeah, I don't know what, what you've heard, but they're right. if They say God is pre-chosen to save those who would believe and, and serve him. Yes, that's exactly right. That God is God is chosen to save those kinds of people. That's 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 true. And the Bible teaches predestination, just not this arbitrary predestination irrespective of what man does. He's predestined what he's going to do for those who choose to serve him.
1: Being choose, because
8: mm-hmm.
1: Yes,
0: God's not forcing like us. It's like the two old society, which we, survive more than what are are going to think of. Yeah. God, God, God is not making the choice for us. God is not making us be what we are. That would make it impossible for us to be saved because God already decided he's not going to choose us. You know, so that makes this all about God's choice and nothing about us. That is not true. They want to make it that way. They feel like if there's anything man has to do at all, even believe, that then that makes it about man and not about God. That's not true. They start with a false premise that God's sovereignty has to outlaw any human response or choice that is not actually dictated and controlled by God. Other
10: questions? Great. Um, I've heard verse 28 used as... Kind of the person is saying, God causes all things to work together for your enjoyment if you love them. Um, that's not what this is saying at all. Because yeah. it's not everything's going to be perfect in your life. He's literally coming off of a section that says there are going to be sufferings in this present time.
0: Sure, but they're going to work together for good, that is, to enable God to glorify us and make us like his son. Certainly not for our enjoyment. Yeah. Yes, but.
6: If God chose certain people, then it would seem like it would be partiality. And secondly, if he chose
2: people and can't do anything about it, why would he tell us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and preach?
8: Great question.
0: Yes. I, I you're exactly right. If God choose, chose arbitrarily that he's being partial, he showing favoritism, And it doesn't make logical sense to me why you evangelize if the unelect couldn't respond, and if the elect will inevitably respond by God's act. you know, then why preach? Now they say you still should. They won't. They won't say you shouldn't evangelize. But but you're offering the gospel to people who God has not chosen, and therefore cannot respond. That doesn't make a lot of sense. There,
8: and the the confusion comes when people think that foreknowledge equals causation. Correct. Watching a kid ride a bicycle without any hands, I know what's going to happen.
7: I'm not
8: not causing it to happen, but I know what's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, God, the foreknowledge does not mean he causes things. Foreknowledge does not mean
0: causation. Foreknowledge gives us a huge knot in the head because we are not God. And so it's so difficult for us to understand how you can know something ahead of time, and it's still not rigged. I have an illustration. This is an imperfect illustration because we can't understand being God. But when I moved to LaGrange, Kentucky in 86, University of Kentucky was on probation, uh, basketball team, and they couldn't be shown why but their home games were being shown on tape delay like 10.30 or 11.00 at night, after the game had been played. That was about the time I was coming home from my studies and I got started watching them. They were a cool team, that was a team with a bunch of under-capable uh, players who outdid themselves for Pacino. And so that was a lot of fun to watch and made me a UK fan, which I'm very grateful for. But uh, <laughs> um, And I probably have more support here than I do at uh, Barbersville, so that's <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but, you know, the thing that was funny about that is I would watch those taped games, and I would make sure I never heard what happened in the game before I got to watch the tape. Because if I knew what had happened, that kind of destroyed the fun of watching the tape. So when I watched the tape, the tape was made by the free will choices of the players, and the coaches, and the refs, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, the game was fixed. When I watched it, it was preached, it was already done. You know, the, the score was already there, it was already what it was. But it, it, it wasn't fixed in the sense that it had been irrespective of their choices, they had chosen what to do in that game. You know, whatever had happened, it happened. But I was watching it after the fact. Now, God could see that take before the fact. Now that didn't make any sense. You can't see a take before it happened. Because we're talking about it. We're not God. So we can't do that. So that doesn't make any sense to us. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how God can see something before it happens. Before it happens, it doesn't exist. From my perspective, human being. But I believe that the Bible teaches God can see that tape ahead of time. One tape. The tape I saw. The tape that depends on the free will choices of the players and the refs and the coaches and the fans and all of that. The, the tape that's authentically their choice, God just can see it ahead of time. Now, again, that just blows a gasket in us. We're not God, and so that isn't, that isn't even, there's no reality to that for us. But how could we possibly understand, you know, God's unlimited time and so forth. And so I think that illustrates the idea God can know something ahead of time that he doesn't fix, that he doesn't determine, and not just because God knows probabilities and tendencies, but because God knows exactly what will happen, because God knows the future, and that, again, there's no way we can understand that. The more you try and figure it out, the more confused you're going to get, as far as I'm concerned. That's the way it fits with me. I just accept I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. But why would I think God would make sense? There's all kinds of things about God. That are just beyond my whole comprehension. How how can you possibly speak a universe into existence? I mean, really? You say the word, let there be light, and suddenly light appears? I mean, that doesn't make sense. You can't do that. Well, God did. I fully believe God did it, but there's no sense that I can make out of that. It doesn't fit anything in my experience. That's okay, it doesn't need to. God's God. So, really, almost everything about God defies our understanding. How, how can God be eternal? I can understand that he can be eternal in the future, but how could he be eternal in the past? How can he've always been? From my perspective, he's always been that we never exist, that this time could never happen, because we'd still be back before we ever are.
10: Yeah, you know, it blows my mind. I, I'm not
0: philosophical, I'm not good with that kind of stuff, but I don't think even if you worry it could really make sense of that from a human perspective. So I think we have to end up accepting that. They don't really make sense to us. Understanding God doesn't need to. He's in a whole different dimension. He could have probably explained it and we wouldn't have had a clue about Maybe I don't know if we ever would. Maybe we'll never understand some things about God. Doesn't matter, we can trust him. He's always been trustworthy. So I think we we've got to understand God's foreknowledge. Doesn't we can't explain it or understand it, but we trust him. Now, I used to be on the other side of that one. I used to believe that God could foreknow things, but he chose not to. But I've changed that. I think the Bible teaches he does foreknow everything. I think he knows everything going to happen. But I think if you think about that too much, it's going to mess you up. Because it, it tends to make you think that nothing I do really matters. But God already knows it. But he knows what you are going to do, and you're going to do it authentically. And the well, more you think about that, you just you run around in circles and it doesn't make any sense. So we accept what God reveals about himself even though we don't understand that, that, That's the way I look at this. Pause and comment? That's why.
2: we
6: see you by faith, not by knowledge or sight. Sure, yeah.
0: yeah. There's a lot of things. I a lot of things
2: that. I don't get about God either. It's, me, it's mind-blowing that we and, and, and
0: really, there are things in this life that are like that. I mean, really?
8: That's why it's called faith.
0: How can you do this?
8: It makes sense.
0: You're not connected with anything. I kind of got the idea of the phone back in my head. You know, the like fixed phone or home phone, you guys don't know anything about this. <laughs> but yeah, that makes sense. You really plug into something, you know. I can see how they can transmit something. But this just picks it up from nowhere. I can call Brazil. I can call Brazilian right now, and in 20 seconds, I could be talking to him almost as clearly as I'm talking to you guys. It makes sense. I don't understand that. But I believe that it happens. You know, so I mean, even things in this life, there's a bunch of them I don't understand. We don't have to understand something. So I, I just think we need to humble ourselves. You know, and realize, okay, I don't understand, but that's the way it is, Look, How does this make fit into the whole Jew versus Gentile? I'm not sure that this is so much a Jew versus Gentile issue. So I, I wouldn't try to relate it to that in this passage. That's, that's not the only goal of all the problems. One of them, but it's not the only one. Because God is working
4: on a plane that is so far above where we are, and I'm seeing that in 28 through 30, in this whole process of our redemption, It's we can't understand it fully. Um, the, it's a very painful process. Could that tie into twenty-six and twenty-seven regarding our our prayers? And because we just can't fully understand God's plan for us, and if we could, maybe we would not want that because of the painful process of our glorification, that we can't don't pray as we should and The Spirit helps fill in those gaps because He understands God's plan for us. Okay, good thought. Other thoughts? I've got some
2: real
8: questions
0: with uh, verse 27. Me
8: too.
6: (laughs) Me too.
2: Okay. Scott, I
6: know
0: you went through that quickly, and I thought, well, maybe there was a reason. But um, but who's growing? I think the Spirit's growing.
6: accept that, but you, your mind tries to think,
0: well, why would the Spirit Maybe the Spirit has his own share of I mean, things to grow about in this whole process. <laughs> Maybe the Spirit's communicating our feelings and groanings to God. I don't know. Uh, 26, 27 is very challenging to me to understand. Except God, yet somewhere the Spirit intercedes in a blessing. Exactly how he does it and what that means, I don't Anything else? I tell you I don't know again. 31 to
9: 39. What then should we say to these things? God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
0: Wow, what a triumphant conclusion. I might suggest that these verses at the end of chapter eight. Have some interesting parallels with the verses at the beginning of chapter 5. As I said, there's a sense in which 5 through 8 is a section. So I'm seeing it more as 1 through 5 and 6 through 8. You can also make it a strong case for 5 through 8 being a unit. Look at verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? As a comforting thought, I don't think he's saying by that that if God is for us, no one is against us. I think he's saying, if God is for us, whoever is against us is a no one. Doesn't matter who's against us. God for us, they're not. Uh, that's that's encouraging. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, up for over, delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The fact that God did not spare his own son, that is the same verb used in the Septuagint. In Genesis 22 and verse 12, when he says, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, God talking to Abraham, withheld in the Septuagint, the same verb is spared here. And so think about Abraham. He did not spare his own son. He gave his son to the Lord. God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us. Now think about it. This means A that this was God's idea. This was not Jesus acting on his own, trying to, trying to twist God's arm into saving us, or anything like this. The father was fully in on this, he chose not to spare his own son. Now, when Abraham, in his mind, in everything but actually drawing, pulling the trigger, sacrificed his son, who suffered, Abraham or Isaac? Yes, both, right? When God didn't spare his son, who suffered? Jesus or God? Both, yes. I believe that the father suffered just as Jesus suffered. In a different way, perhaps, but in a very great way, a very significant way. Uh, that this was hard for the father just as it was hard for the son. And, and so, so. but yet he didn't spare his own son, but deliver him over for us all, Doesn't that say we can trust him for anything else we need? If he's willing to make the supreme sacrifice, won't God be willing to do anything else that's needed to fulfill our salvation? I mean, I think this shows you God's attitude. It shows you God's heart. It shows you God really, really wants to save us. If he hadn't wanted to save us, why would he have done this? Wouldn't it make any sense to go through all this if he didn't really want us to be saved? He wouldn't have bothered. So, to me, this just really confirms the idea that we can trust the Lord for anything else we need. Now he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? If God justifies, who can condemn? Christ is the one who died, was raised at the right hand of God intercedes for us, and will separate us from the love of Christ. Kind of echoes of Isaiah 50. But the fact is, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Tribulation. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Almost all of those things are things that St. Corinthians all went through. Like the only one that's not in some of the lists in St. Corinthians is sword. Paul hadn't been executed yet, but about everything else he'd gone through. But none of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. It's not a new thing for God to permit his people to suffer injustice at the hands of a man God. God's going to do that, but they won't separate us from the love of God. God will be with us. God be with us in those sufferings, in those trials, in those, in those anguishes. For well, it's written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. We are super conquerors through Jesus. We have so much to look forward to. We see what the Lord has already done. We see what he wants to do, what he plans to do. What a great blessing. And so he says, I'm convinced that none of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God. No one will be able to condemn us. No one can separate us from the love of God. Whether you're talking about death or life, you know, the experience of existence. Whether you're talking about angels or principalities, you know, spiritual armies. Whether you're talking about things to come things present or things to come, whatever time there is, hide your death, anything in space, any other created thing. There's nothing that can threaten our security in Jesus. Nothing that separates us from the love of God. Obviously, we could leave God's love. That'd be foolish. We could. But there's no force on earth that can make us not uh, be in God's love. Nothing can stop God's purpose for those who have in Christ. He will see to it that we are saved. He will see to it that we are loved by him to be in. What triumphant words. What things we have to look forward to. What blessings. Are there sufferings? There are. You know, there are. But is there a, a hope that transcends the suffering and makes them seem as nothing. As he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. They are nothing compared with the glory that's coming. That's the the triumphal conclusion. This is a wonderful passage. This is a wonderful hope. We need to see the blessings we have in Christ. Thoughts and confidence.
2: Whatever we suffer,
0: whatever we suffer, you know, we have nothing to fear. I granted, wow, when you compare what they suffered with what we suffer, it's nothing. We might ought to be prepared for more. It's not, it's certainly possible that in our generation, we may have to suffer some of these things. Will re- we'll, re- we'll be ready. Or are we not suffering some of these things now because we're pulling back and not really committing ourselves to the work? That's something to think about. As well. Linda? Yeah, I was just thinking when
10: you conquer
6: something, that's basically it. But when he says you're more
0: than a conqueror, it's uh, intriguing thoughts. Yeah, yeah. How do you do more than that? Yeah, good good thought. Yeah, exactly.
2: Matt. Um, what is the purpose of him quoting Psalm 24 here in verse 36? Well, that's was always seems like out of place to me read Jesus.
0: We are put to death for the Lord's sake. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. There is a suffering for the Lord. Which is apparently what was going on in Psalm 44 as well. Doesn't seem like they were suffering for their sins in Psalm 44. They were being su- they were suffering for the Lord and didn't understand it. That seems to be the idea here. There's a suffering for the Lord that's not what we deserve, but it happens. But we need to take that into account. We've got wonderful prospects, lots of reason to hope, but it doesn't mean there's not suffering. Other thoughts, questions comments? John.
8: Did God in the beginning when time began for us know in advance that a Savior would be needed even before man was created?
0: Yes, I believe so. You've got several passages that indicate he's foreknown Jesus like First Peter one twenty. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Uh, so I think there are, there are other passages as well that say that. And that indicate take that God had planned redemption before creation.
8: Doesn't that give us an insight into God and his love for us? Because if we would have been there, we'd say, Well, wait a minute, we're going to stop this whole creation thing. Yes.
0: He
8: he knew that before he created man, that would sin.
0: Correct. Yes, and that does make you think. God was willing to create even though he knew what it would cost him. And there's a lot of things you can think about that. I mean, you wonder, God must have thought the value of having some who would have ultimate fellowship with him transcended all the grief and anguish. He would suffer, Jesus would suffer, and even people would suffer. Um, I there's a lot of things you think about. That obviously, again, we're kind of beyond our element to understand all that God must have thought about with that, but it is moving to know He created it, knowing what we Other thoughts.
7: Okay, we're going to say... Uh Mike, you want to